Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an entrepreneur whose company uses AI to help speed up and improve decision-making. Top mathematicians, they are everywhere. You don't require a huge amount of expenses. There's cloud technology. So I believe the next generation of the leading machine learning will not just come from the 1.7 billion people represented by US and China, but the 6 billion in between them, which is the rest of the world. That was Vishal Chatrat, chief executive and co-founder of Prowler. He came into the FT to talk to me about transport and logistics forecasting, smart cities, and why Europe's regulatory environment could give it the edge in setting standards for the AI industry. Prowler is a platform for decision-making. How did you get into this business? How did you end up running an AI company in Cambridge? I came to Cambridge in 2014 after closing down my previous startup. And what was that? My previous startup was to do with automotive. So I was essentially trying to build a BlackBerry kind of a server for the automotive industries to manage all the cars, but it was way ahead of its time. And that's where I learned a lot about building large-scale systems. And previous to that, I was with Nokia building software platforms. So I had a very varied career. And prior to that, I was a researcher in the university. So when I came here to Cambridge in 2014, I did not know anybody. We moved here primarily for our daughter's education. And I had learned while Googling that there were 1,300 startups in Cambridge. And I thought with very early stage tech and my experience sort of scaling tech, I'll probably find something to scale. And while I was just cold calling people and sending emails around, Cambridge Enterprise was one of the people who received my email and they introduced me to a company called Vocal IQ, which was started by two academics out of Cambridge University. And they had the idea of making decisions inside a voice dialogue system to understand how to reply back to a human in like a sensible and a coherent way. Through that, I met Herman Hauser, joined the company, we raised the funding, and 14 months later, we got acquired by Apple. There, I met my co-founder, Dr. Donko Kim, whose background and PhD was about decision-making under uncertainty. So that's where I learned about the power of machine learning for making decisions, and I also learned the various kinds of machine learning. At that particular time, the only kind of machine learning the world was talking about was deep neural nets. But the kind of machine learning required for making decisions, which is a completely different branch of machine learning. So with Dongho, who had transitioned to Apple, and I convinced him to leave and start this company, I asked him, would there be a way to come up with applying machine learning to a generalized notion of making decisions? And the examples that I had in my head were around the various jobs I had done through my past 20 years. And his answer was yes. But obviously, he said, it's a very hard problem. We need to incorporate many other branches of machine learning, and it's a massive challenge. It could take a very long time. So long time is not a problem to me because I've come from building large-scale infrastructure projects. So five, 10 years for me is like a normal timeline to achieve success if you're building something very complex. So we started on that idea. We started to turn it around, have a chat with Herman, who was happy that we had made him a good exit from Vocal IQ. And we also got introduced to Professor Carl Rasmussen, who is a professor in probabilistic modeling and machine learning at Cambridge University, who 12 years ago had written a foundation book on a technique of probabilistic modeling, which allows you to make probabilistic outcomes or forecasting with very small amounts of data. But he was using it in a constrained space of control systems. Then with all those discussions that you can only have in Cambridge, we sort of visualized we could build this world, but the engineering challenge was massive. And we also realized that we will really need to pull in a bunch of other top brains around the world doing different fields of academia. 
So Herman and Eileen Burbage from Passion Capital invested in us. And through Dongo and through Carl, we were able to attract the top talent from around the world. How many people do you now have? So we have a staff of 110, 30 different nationalities. And we've been very, very lucky in getting some of these best brains in the world to see our vision and join us at that very early stage of the journey. Can you tell us how do you help people make decisions? So our platform really focuses on understanding and modeling complex environments inside companies. And what that really means in practice is that inside companies, the amount of information that you have to describe a system is typically not complete because what we are doing is we are really sampling bits of an organization. So one way to look at it is we have a keyhole view of an organization through the data that we collect. Through our AI and modeling techniques, we help to complete that picture in simulation. And once you've completed that picture, you can make a better decision. It's almost like you go somewhere and you see a Mona Lisa through seven keyholes and we help you to describe the complete Mona Lisa. That sounds very abstract to me. Can you give me a a kind of practical example of how in the real world are you helping people to make better decisions? Yeah, so we've had two applications. One has been in the area of financial services. So uh, one of our customers is using our platform to manage a fund of futures. And the other one is in logistic supply chain, where one of the world's largest company managing pallets, they manage nearly 400 million of them, is using our platform to optimize usage of pallets. So I'll probably go with the logistic use case first because it's more intuitive. From that perspective, because you have this large number of pallets and you can't really tag all of them because of cost and all those reasons, then in that area where you have very low visibility in the supply chain, how do you make optimal decisions? And in this case, the decision on sending out trucks to pick up the pallets from the retailers. And we've been able to improve the efficiency by up to 75% of the rate of picking up pallets or actually failed pickups by 75%. Right. And in the finance sector, what are you doing there? So in the finance sector, we are managing a portfolio of futures. And essentially, it's a systematic fund. It's not high frequency. So what our platform does, it makes buy-sell-hold decisions on a basket of 70 futures once a day. And the goal is to beat the existing funds at a lower cost. How is it better than a human trader in that respect? So how we built the platform, it's a combination of human and machine intelligence. So one of the key aspects of our platform is that it's not about replacing humans, but it's really about empowering humans with the usage of AI. So what we have is this notion of human-machine teaming. So with our partners, we understand how a fund should be structured. And within the parameters of these funds, because it's a pension fund and a life insurance fund, so they are you know, highly regulated in terms of the risk and volatility. So we agree on those kind of parameters. And we use our platforms to essentially do two things. First of all, structure the portfolio, what should be the constituents of the portfolio. And secondly, forecast what is the right time to trade the elements of that. So you can best visualize it as we have created a machine learning hedge fund effectively. But because we don't have the license to trade, We work with a financial institution who uses our platform to do the trades. There are a number of people who use machine learning in trading programs. And as far as I understand, one of the things that they have discovered is it can be fantastically good for a short time because they are very good at spotting the historic patterns. But these models tend to break down quite quickly. How do you maintain their relevance? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think the notion of alpha decay has to be in any optimization system, whether it's supply chain or in the financial markets. There, how we uh, differ is our ability to learn the changes in the market and essentially predict alpha decay. So among the everything that we are predicting, we are also predicting alpha decay. And then update those machine learning models 
once a day. And in our case, that learning happens you know, once a day. And how effective are they now that they're being deployed? Is there something of kind of financial arms race between people employing different trading programs? Yeah. So the first ones that we've applied to, these are essentially trend following strategies. And we are benchmarking against a portfolio of other funds. So there's a basket of about 15 futures that our customers gave us, and we're benchmarking against that. There's a very good correlation between risk and reward. So because these are highly regulated and because it's like a pension fund, given the risk ability that we have to take, we are very competitive. Now, finance and logistics are clearly both very data-heavy sectors of the economy. What other sectors can you apply this decision-making technique to? Could you apply it to politics, for example? We are in need of a bit of a better decision-making, I feel, in that area. So I think that's a very good point, that while they are very data-heavy, the thing is the actual amount of data that you have typically to make a decision is most of the time very sparse. Because inside the financial markets, for example, if you have to make a trading decision, that trading decision has to be made with what happened a not very long time ago. And typically those data points can be very sparse. You can have 1, 10, 20, 30. So we are able to react very fast on decisions. Similarly, inside large logistics supply chains, there's lots of incompleteness of data. And one of the applications that could be possibly applied from the perspective of politics is policy making. Because policy is all about trying to forecast how you should allocate capital going forward under uncertainty, because there are lots and lots of scenarios we don't know. And which is very much analogous to what we do with large-scale supply chains, because what we're really doing is creating what-if scenarios for the CEOs and the CFOs and the head of business planning. And then they can probe the system for various scenarios and say, what's the best way to allocate capital? Have you pitched this idea to Boris Johnson yet? Not yet, but uh, I wouldn't be averse to doing that. <laughs> <laughs> now, one other area that rather intrigues me that you're applying your techniques to is traffic management. And you have this vision of buses basically picking up people from where they are rather than waiting at a stop for the number nine to come along. How does that work in practice? So a lot of the work in terms of how people are thinking about smart cities is about having lots and lots of sensors and sort of getting the data and reacting to it. So the problem with any sort of a reactive system is that there'll be bits of your nodes which at any given time will be broken. So people talk about, you know, billions of IoT sensors in a city, which I think just from a cost perspective is impossible. So what you need to do is react and act on a system before the event has happened because there's a finite time to get a bus to its place. It can't react instantly. So therefore, it essentially gets down to our principles of modeling what's going to happen into the city in the next 10, 15 minutes and proactively being there where we expect demand to be. And we are already applying that exact same models for the financial markets because we're really forecasting where we expect the market to be, balancing the portfolio before the event has happened. Similarly, allowing our logistics customers to book fleets of trucks weeks in advance before the actual demand shows itself. I think one description of what AI systems do is they're very good prediction machines. Is that a useful way of looking at it? So they're very good prediction machines to start with. But any decision is actually a trade-off between multiple predictions. So you might have 40, 50, 100 different parameters. And given the time of the day, you might want to skew for a certain parameter. Because tomorrow, if you are talking about sending people around and what sort of modes of transport, it could vary with the price in fuel. So for example, in the case of our logistics customer, there's a balance or a trade-off they have to make all the time between the idle stock level that they have of pallets in their warehouses versus the rate at which the pallet should be picked up. Now, in a high season, 
you want those kind of pallets picked up as fast as possible because of the demand. But in the low season, you can kind of lower it down. But you could also have a change where you're predicting the oil price to go higher. So the oil price is expected to go higher and trucks burn lots of fuel. Before it goes higher, you want to go and pick them up and sort of park them. So the decision that is today versus next day could change based on oil price, the price of wood, a bunch of other factors. Yep. How big is the opportunity for Prowler? How many fields do you think you could apply this technology to? So the supply chain logistics industry, somebody had forecast, was worth about nine or 10 trillion. The hedge fund industry alone, forget about all the other things, is again, eight, nine trillion. So best way to look at us in terms of just a scope we could apply, think of us not very different from an enterprise resource planning sort of a company like SAP, which you have the baseline enterprise resource planning, but you could apply it to any enterprise. So the way we have structured the company, it should be able to apply it to any domain, but it's going to take a few years. Now, I heard you speaking at the COGEX AI Festival earlier this year, and you gave a very powerful speech in defense of Europe. Often when people talk about the AI sector, they think about Silicon Valley and they think about China. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And Europe is pretty much an afterthought. How can Europe fight for its place in AI? I think from a starting point, we have fantastic schools. And we have a fantastic sort of a social security system here in Europe, which allows us to take a certain level of risk without falling through the hole. And I can see it from personal example, because growing up in India, if you fail at something, the choice is no safety net, you straight go into destitution, right? So you have to be very careful with your risk. Whereas in Finland, I can try, I can take a risk, but if something doesn't work, I will still have a roof off my head. But the charge against Europe is that we're always incredibly risk averse. We don't like failure. Yeah, and there's always a balance to be had, right? So there's a balance between risk, failure, but the advantage in the case of Europe is because of bodies like European Union and GSM and so on and so forth, we have a history of cooperating. And that's not new. Even the Hanseatic trade body in the 1400s was really a part of Europe's inherent culture to work together for trading. And for us to compete, the example I like to give from the technology age, which I personally experienced, was the GSM standard. So the fact that we can walk around with phones and call sort of anywhere in the world wasn't possible in the 1990s when I started to work as an engineer. So traveling to Japan, I had to rent a phone. Traveling to US, I had to rent a phone. And GSM standard came about because the only way for Europe to compete against the established wireless companies of the time, like AT&T, like Motorola, like Qualcomm, was to come together, agree on a standard, and lower the cost of innovation and build very sophisticated solutions. So Nokia and Ericsson, who are the dominant players, who beat the established players, came from fixed exchanges. They had no record of building mobile telephony. But the success was because the private sector got the support of the government. So strangely enough, six governments agreed to kind of sign the deal, of which one was UK. And that laid the basis of a certain regulatory environment that allowed us to build wireless networks and really become the global force. So do you think we in Europe could create a GSAI? Absolutely. I have no doubt. I think if there's any place in the world we could do it, it has to be Europe because 27 countries used to having this technology and enough variation 
in terms of demographic and environments because we have everything from Lapland, which is minus 40, to the south of Spain, which is plus 40. So in terms of basically testing geography is the best place to do it. And can you explain to me, how does standardization benefit the AI industry? My first degree was in telecommunication. So one of the reasons why telecommunication systems are so efficient and why we can talk to each other is the standardization of a packet of information. So there is a header, there's the body, and there's a footer. And in the last few years, when I've been working in the supply chain, everybody talks about data cleaning. Data is not unclean, it's not dirty. It's just completely messed up. And the reason why is because everybody creates their own data schema for whatever application that they have, and it's completely nonsensical. So we should start with one data schema. And by my rough estimates, billions of dollars every year get spent on wasteful so-called cleaning of the data, which absolutely doesn't need to happen at all. So just by agreeing on that, we'll increase the efficiency. And later on, we can move up the stack. And the best place to do it here is in kind of Europe, while both China and the US are fighting their big battles and doing all the other stuff that they're doing. I think we're in the perfect place to learn from that. I mean, at the moment, a number of industries make quite a lot of money out of non-standard data, don't they? So I'm thinking particularly of electronic medical records, where part of the business model basically is to make sure that these systems don't talk to each other. Well, absolutely. And I think in the 1990s, lots of companies made lots of cash renting you phones so that your phone number could work in various countries, but it was complete nonsense. You could just kind of get rid of it. It's essentially one level of friction in productivity that we don't need. We should just completely get rid of it and unlock the potential. So right now I'm working with a proto-standardization body. One of our customers who are very sort of thoughtful and have the foresight, we are trying to do that for the supply chain industry. So we are working on building a consortium with one of the world's largest logistics companies. And that, to me, will be sort of a precursor of this standardization. But we can do it orders of magnitude faster if we could get the EU involved. And is that likely, do you think? Oh, yes. I'm absolutely convinced it has to happen. It just needs somebody to champion it 24-7. And Herman Hauser, who you referenced earlier, who's one of the founders of ARM and is a big figure in the European tech world, has certainly been pushing that agenda, hasn't he, on the European Innovation Council and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been speaking to Herman about it, and they've recently announced that fund. So we as a company are also applying to that fund. And we believe so passionately about the idea of European innovation, because as a part of Europe, we have 500 million. We have the second largest economic bloc in the world after the US and fantastic universities. And I think we have everything out there to succeed today. One of the other charges against Europe is that it's fantastically good at creating very interesting businesses and then they all get bought out by big US or Chinese companies just at the stage when they could become really substantial businesses. Now, Tencent is one of the investors in Prowler. Are you tempted to sell out at some point to a big multinational company? So I think right now is not the time for us. And I think one of the reasons, first of all, why the companies do get sold out is there was a lack of growth capital. So at the time of Vocal IQ, it was the right decision for the founders because there was just lack of growth capital and you need growth capital to grow at the next stage of the company. But in the last three years, that's changed dramatically. Lots of growth funds have actually come in to Europe, established offices here. So now to raise the next 100, 200, 300 million to go and compete with the big ones is not an impossible dream. I don't have to move to the Silicon Valley to do that. I can do it right here in Europe. So you think European businesses now can scale up? Yeah. And then, you know, we have a bit of a history, but probably not as rich. We have the likes of SAP who have been there, who have done that, established that. And, you know, with any part of the world, there's always this age of the empires. Maybe it's not the best analogy, but from a technological perspective, I think the Silicon Valley's had its day. That's rather a big statement. <laughs> what do you mean by that? So I think every few decades, there is a groundbreaking technology that unlocks the next innovation. 
And the last big revolution happened because of the 1960s DARPA-funded building of the IP stack. Because the IP stack funded by DARPA was really in the US, and that sort of unlocked the entire telecommunication internet industry. And so the web browser, of course, done by Tim Berners-Lee, people didn't think about it because it sort of got there. And I think the next big enabling technology is AI and machine learning. And just as one data point, 70% of the most cited papers are from people who actually worked in Europe or were trained in Europe. So I think we have everything in place. And if we are able to realize the dream of GSAI, we will unlock that. So Kaifu Li, the author of AI Superpowers, would say it's going to be China. China leads the world in the application of AI. Is that not right? So I respect Kaifu as a scientist. Having gone through the book, it has two flawed bits of logic. One is this entire idea that you need lots and lots of data. And if you have lots and lots of data, you will be a master in machine learning, which is false. Because that assumes deep neural nets, and we have shown categorically, both scientifically and in application, that deep neural nets don't work for enterprise decision-making use cases. And also the fact that you don't need millions of data points. The execution that we have done with our customers, we literally had 21 data points and not 21 million, which is essentially also one of the areas we filed our patents and published a lot of papers. The second bit of the thesis that is flawed is it assumes that the core tools for the next generation and the core brains for the next generation only exist in two places, which is China and US. Now, the tools have become amazingly democratized. Coming from India, the entire Indian IT revolution would not have happened if that thesis was true. Why? Because you can just go to the internet and all the core tool sets for starting a machine learning company like TensorFlow and everything are all open so you can download it. And top mathematicians, they are everywhere. You don't require a huge amount of expenses. There's cloud technology. So I believe the next generation of the leading machine learning will not just come from the 1.7 billion people represented by US and China, but the 6 billion in between them, which is the rest of the world. So I think it's a deeply flawed thesis. You're talking about the standardization of AI standards being a big opportunity for Europe. How much of a problem is it that the country in which you're located is about to chop itself off mostly from Europe? I think that's obviously going to be a scary proposition. And I think we have to just figure out how to work around it. It's not helpful. So the day our funding closed was 24th of June 2016 was the day of the result, <laughs> right? So it's been a slightly more uphill battle than would be a normal uphill battle to start any company. So the way I like to see it is that the moment we started a company, somebody just raised the sort of inclination of the treadmill by 15 degrees. But then, as my uncle used to put it, if things get harder, just think you're in the gym with slightly heavier weights, you're just going to end up stronger. So I think we've been sort of fighting against that. I think it could be a challenge, but I'm really relying on the fact in the last three years, we built a reputation of being a very international place to work with. And the fact that we have staff from 30 different nationalities, they are really our global ambassadors to tell people that actually, while the publicly expressed sentiment of some of the politicians here might reflect that it's an unfriendly place, the immigration policies in the UK have actually gotten better since the Brexit. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So those 30 nationalities, they think it's a more conducive environment to be in, even if the atmosphere is worse. Yeah. So every time they hear the news, they think it's worse. Mm -hmm. Every time I remind them that the immigration policy has gotten easier, then it sort of changes the sentiment. But obviously, because I'm not able to remind them every day, but the negative sentiment is spewed out almost every day. <laughs> it's a, so it's a bit of a battle, but I actually have a very good HR department that constantly <laughs> reminds people things are not that bad. 
final subject I'd like to ask you about is that there's obviously a big debate in the tech world about whether machine learning and AI is labor replacing or labor augmenting. And that will make a very big difference to the future economy and society that we live in. I mean, it's obviously a massive generalization, but if you were to pick, is AI more labor enhancing or replacing? Labor enhancing. Why? It's my experience and, of course, uh, reading a bit of history. So one of your articles I read that with home appliance technologies that came out in the 1960s, the housewife's working time per week reduced by 42 hours. And that's massive. So I would call domestic appliances like washing machine, like food processors as first generation uh, AI or robots that we have at home. And when I also look at how it's been deployed, in The Economist, there's an article that showed that in terms of the global employment, we are at the highest rate of employment at any given time. The world population is highest ever point, 7.7 billion. In the 1990s, when the internet revolution was just about to take off, we had a very similar discussion. Doom and gloom, 40, 50, 100, 200 million people stabbing each other, world hunger breaking out and all that. Absolutely nothing happened. So the new internet got companies like Google, Amazon, and all these greats, global supply chains increased, and essentially we are a much, much richer society. There's much less conflict. Disease has sort of gone down. So all the parameters, if you read any of Hans Rosling's books, have improved. With AI and machine learning, I don't see any different. It's an enabling technology. So I'm very, very optimistic. Good. So immigration policy is getting better in Britain in practice. Europe is going to lead the world in AI and... We also should be optimistic about the labour-enhancing potential of AI. That's right. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Fisher. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>